So I'd like to work back to Howard's question about non-self, but I'm gonna, uh, I want to enter it in a slightly roundabout way. Uh, try to incorporate the, the heart of the, of the Buddha's teaching so that it's not just a, just plucked, non-self is plucked out of midair, but it's in the context of understanding the, the path of liberation. When the Buddha turned the wheel of the Dharma, he gave a, a teaching called the, uh, the Dhammachaka Sutta, which is the Dhamma, Dhamma is the Dharma, and Chaka is wheel or chakra. And the Dhammachaka Sutta included in that was his teaching on the, the Four Noble Truths, you know, the kind of the, the teaching in the Buddha's teaching that contains all the other teachings, that everything is, flows from the Four Noble Truths. And in that teaching, he essentially shined a light on the basic facts of existence that every single being who is born into this world, any sentient being, being who draws breath or being who is who is born, uh, be any, any, any being in existence, is, their life is marked uh, by what's called dukkha. If you are born, you will have uh, the experience of dukkha. And the, the very general, uh, not so useful translation of dukkha is suffering, but it's not, that's not what it means. It means... It really means um, hard to bear. Every every being is is every being's life has within it things that are hard to bear. The a more accurate and uh, more accurate translation is un. It is marked by unsatisfactoriness. It is marked by unreliability. So in other words, you cannot rely in this life on, uh, on any particular experience to give you lasting happiness. It, every experience that you have is fundamentally unsatisfactory in its reliability. You can't, you can't find... Uh, yet, human beings are in a fairly constant search for a reliable uh, experience. Uh, every human being, every being is in search of relief, of happiness. And that, that search for happiness, unless, it's, unless there is an understanding that every experience that one seeks, that one usually um, hopes will bring that happiness is unsatisfactory, unreliable. And the ignorance of this unsatisfactoriness, this unreliability, this fact that everybody's mark, life is marked with things that are hard to bear, the ignorance of that leads to suffering. 
it leads to the, the human, the, a human response to these conditions, these circumstances that everyone finds themselves in. It leads to a human response of basically three things. Uh, wanting, uh, wanting it to be different than the way it is. That's the general. But it, that expresses itself as wanting is the continual uh, desire to keep seeking. Seeking but not finding. Seeking. And so it's very easy for one in a state of, of chronic uh, desire for more or the chronic desire for things to stop that that turns the basic unsatisfactoriness of life into mental suffering. And the avoidance of, of this truth of unsatisfactoriness, the, 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 um, yeah, the avoidance of it, the turning away from it, also becomes a cause of suffering. And then, perhaps most insidiously, the tendency of the, the human, natural human response or the conditioned human response is to, um, is to take the experience of unsatisfactoriness, things that are difficult to bear, and personalize it. Turn it into um, to me and mine. And often the elaboration of that personalizing is that uh, it's all about me. It's only me. Uh, and then it, there's a tendency to even see the, everyone else is kind of just going along fine and I'm the one that's, that's um, suffering. So the reaction of grasping and aversion produces a lot of tension. It, this is where suffering is. And removing the cause of suffering is the heart of the Buddha's teaching. So if, we're, if the cause of suffering is grasping at more, what do we want to do about that? We want to release that grasping. If the cause of suffering is to avoid and, and resist and deny and defend and, and, and hide away in fear and dullness, we want to lean in. We want to turn toward. We want to release that, that tight fist of resistance. If the cause of suffering is to, is to personalize everything, is to uh, turn it into a, into, to, to have the reaction in our mind, turn it into a, a whole personal drama. Somehow forgetting uh, forgetting the universality of, of dukkha, what we want to do with that tendency to personalize is we want to, we want to uh, let it go. We want to, we want to um, step out of the, uh, of the identity with uh, what we're experiencing. For example, I think I, I was talking, I don't know... I'm having, I've been having a lot because I've done so many teaching with so much, so many teachings with so many different groups. I don't remember what I say from one week to the next. But I, I meet with a lot of people who have conflicts with their family 
and families inherently have conflicts. That's part of, there are things that are hard to bear in being in relationship with other people. That's a given. And when, when relationships uh, are, um, are somewhat difficult to bear, there tends to be a lot of reactivity that exacerbates them, that compounds the stress in them. And the number one thing that seems to compound the stress in relationships, and I see this in mother-daughter relationships, in husband and partner, or you know, all the, whatever configuration, <laughs> the, the identity with one of those roles is a, is a deep cause of suffering. So often if, if a, a mother, let's say a mother and a daughter, can step out of the role of mother and daughter and just see each other in their humanity, their relationship to whatever conflict is going on diminishes, the stress of it diminishes tremendously. But as long as there's this identity of mother and what, a, what a, all the associations and meanings of, of a mother and as long as there's the association with the daughter and all that goes with that, there is this, this, um, this contentiousness, this, this um, int- what seems like an intractable barrier that doesn't actually see the, the, uh, all the conditions, just the basic dukkha of the basic challenge of whatever is going on. It's the identity that kind of locks it into place and it makes it really hard for people to heal. So this identity, identity with our role, identity with our community, identity with our, with our gender, our orient- sexual orientation, identities, even though they are such a, a natural part of our life, they're part of our conditioned life, identities ultimately are not, they do not have any, they, like everything else, are unsatisfactory, unreliable as a source of refuge, as a source of peace. They are marked by dukkha. Why are they marked by dukkha? Why is everything marked by dukkha? Everything is generally marked by dukkha because it's in a constant state of change. So one moment I'm in one identity and the next moment I'm in a different identity. One moment I'm the guru, like I often joke here, I'm the guru. And then I go home. And at home I'm take out the garbage. Or why aren't you more disciplined? Why aren't you disciplining our daughter? Whatever it is, the identity, I can't rely on that identity of guru when I go home. And I'm still back at home right now. Excuse me, I have to. (laughs) (laughs) And when when any of us in our life are praised, we can't rely on that praise because the the next moment we'll be blamed. We cannot rely on gain because 
just a slight little turn of the wheel, conditions outside of our control, we'll experience loss. Um, Pleasure easily gives way to pain. Uh, It's amazing how in sitting quietly, how often there'll be a kind of delicious uh, peace. I felt it tonight. But then, literally a few moments later, a little restlessness, a little, a little ache in my, in my low back. And these are just conditions. They're changing. There's no reliable... So if I get identified with, oh, I've really got it now, my body starts to hurt. That identity is it's just a... It's just a view of reality. The Buddha called this identity... He called it self-view. And as a view, he called it Sakaya Ditti. As a view, it's just a thought. So we are so trained to land in and identify with these views of ourselves. Guru, husband, friend, success, failure. We, we all live our lives being blown by the winds of our changing identities. And identity, the, the sense of self, because it is hooked very often to these worldly winds, completely insecure. Because it tends to be hooked to our bodies, which are always changing, Sometimes well, sometimes not. A deep source of insecurity. Because they are, identities are often tethered to our thoughts. Thoughts changing all the time. Sometimes this, this uh, great feeling of, of worth and wholeness. And then other moments of insecurity and self-consciousness. So tethered to thoughts. Completely insecure. Identity. The sense of I. That is tethered to anything is insecure. So what happened with the Buddha is that he, he said, I, I'm realizing that all, all, of my, all of my wealth, all of my success, all of my, all these wonderful qualities... They haven't given me any, th- any kind of reliable happiness. My life, even with being the, the wealthiest and the, having everything, is marked by dukkha. Yet I want to find something. Uh, I want to find a solid place that I can rest. And so he started to practice. And he practiced stepping out of the, the usual kind of seeking and instead he turned inward and he found beautiful peace and quiet internally. But he saw that that was also a changing condition. That was not... He couldn't, couldn't hang his identity on having a quiet mind. Even that is a, would be a source of insecurity. He couldn't hang his, uh, his identity on having a body that was, uh, 
that was uh, peaceful or smooth, ever-changing. But meanwhile, by attending moment after moment after moment to the changing flow of experience, showing up moment by moment, he began to have some realizations about the nature of our mind and our body. And this is why we practice. He saw that this, that this body and moods and thoughts, etc., they're marked by three characteristics. I'm going to do this in two minutes. Please hang in there. That one can not adopt this as a belief, but one can see this for oneself. One can see it in a microscopic way. If you really pay attention to the flow of experience, you can see it in, in the way the world works. It's the same that we see microscopically, we see macroscopically. Macro, whatever that word is. But what he saw that the first characteristic key was that in studying the mind and the body as everything, and I'm repeating again what I said, everything is in a constant state of flux. There is nothing in this body-mind that stays constant. And because nothing stays constant, both internally and externally, because nothing stays constant, because everything is in a state, a flow of change, it is, it is unreliable, it's unsatisfactory. And because everything is arising and changing and fading and arising and fading, there is no place in this changing process that we can find a solid self. That whatever is changing is marked by selflessness. And it's not only selfless in that you cannot find a solid self in changing conditions, but whatever is arising and passing is arising and passing selflessly. It is happening all by itself not according to any will or wish. And even will and wish in the quietness of our mind, even will and wishing is recognized as a selfless process. We talk about my will, but if you were to really pay attention to what we call will, we'd see that will comes and no one who wills. Choices come, but no one who chooses. The body moves, but nobody, nobody think thoughts come, but nobody thinks. And so behind this is this trance, this this view called wrong view, avijja, ignorance, this view that behind this ever-changing process there is someone pulling the levers, he saw right through that. He saw that this there was no that everything was marked by non-self. And with the understanding, this is the key, with the understanding of not-self, the not-self element in everything, what naturally comes from that 
is the release of the attempt to create one. The wisdom becomes a cause of releasing that, that habit of grasping and condemning and identifying with the flow of experience and one just begins to let go. And be lived in a way. Uh, and this understanding of not-self does not in any way deny the conventional experience that we have of individuality, but we see that our individuality is marked by not-self. That within this mind-body process, there is nothing whatsoever that can be clung to as our self. Every element of it, including the one we imagine ourselves to be, is just another changing condition. So that's the idea of it. But the point isn't to just think about it, it's to realize it. And to realize it in the simplest ways every day, just by knowing how thoughts think themselves. Notice the interaction of your mind and, of mind and body as you, if you sit here as you're about to make this transition to leave, you'll notice that unless an impulse arises to move, called nama, called mind, you'll just stay here. And that impulse is selfless. So the impulse right now arising in the mind is to stop this talk. And then a following impulse came to consider that, that uh, if any of this is useful, to consider of offering it as a, a, offering whatever benefits have come from our time together to, to the benefit of all beings. And a wish that all beings could realize the selflessness of experience and let go. I'll just end with a poem from from Stephen Batchelor. It's actually from Nagarjuna. It's, it's called Someone, and it's about identity and, and about selflessness. Someone, blocked by, blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where Personality unfolds and world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience. I crave to have and avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free, to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anxiety, anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So when 
He says anguish emerges when someone is born. What our job is, is to notice how we are born moment by moment into the view of ourselves as, as independent, separate from the flow of life. And to be able to notice the self-view as another changing condition. So then cutting it at its root. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Don't be born. If you notice it as a thought, notice it as an emergence, it's just a changing condition. So let's just stay in the unborn all week. You won't disappear. The idea of you may disappear, but you will just be filled with everything. Enjoy. Remain in the unborn. Anyway, thanks for your practice. Thanks for listening. Sorry for keeping you extra time. And thanks for your generosity. It really allows us to be here. And next week, I will not be here. We will be regaled by our wonderful president of our board, Mary Davis, who is also the lead teacher at Insight Richmond, a community Dharma leader graduate, uh, full of heart, full of great Dharma understanding. She'll be taking this seat next week. Come and support each other, support her, and, uh, and here's some good Dharma. Anyway, thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.